Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports. Download the Prize Picks app or go to prizepicks.com to sign up and play today. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, Prize Picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, Prize Picks will give you $50. Again, don't forget the promo code GOODSEATS at prizepicks.com or download the Prize Picks app today. And now, here's our show. A Yankee rampage back with two runs on three hits. No errors and a man left. And the score at the end of eight and one half innings of play, it's the New York Yankees nine and the Pittsburgh Pirates nine. And Ralph Berry, of course, on the mound will be facing Mazeroski. Seats still available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Wow, can you feel the excitement? Hi, everybody. It's your pal, Tim Hanlon. How's it going? It's uh, episode number 281. My goodness, of this little monstrosity we like to call Good Seats Still Available. Welcome to the proceedings. Uh, thank you for finding us. You're a doctor of defunct. Uh, reporting for uh, duty as we uh, try to do for you each and every week. And uh, the excitement knows no bounds this week as we go back to the Steel City. It's Pittsburgh back into the spotlight uh, with our old pal uh, Dave Finoli uh, returning from, uh, geez, what it was, December of last year. Uh, we went deep in our episode 242 around the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh, also known as the Igloo. Uh, some great stories there. And uh, Dave is back with another book. Um, and I need to sort of put this all in context. Dave Finoli is the, essentially the, uh, uh, the, the locus for all things sports history in and around Pittsburgh. He's got an assemblage of, um, 
local authors and sports historians, Tom Rooney, a former guest on this show, Bob Healy, Doug Cavanaugh, Chris Fletcher, a bunch of others. Uh, they uh, are essentially uh, a, uh, a rotating uh, a crew, if you will, of um, uh, nostalgists and, and very deep uh, historians on all things Pittsburgh sports, not just pro, but uh, collegiate and, uh, and all sort of facets. And um, Dave has uh, ring-led yet another, uh, another book. And if you go on Amazon, you'll find just literally a, a dozen or two books on all kinds of different topics. We venture this uh, week on this, uh, this week's show uh, to the brand new paperback book out by Dave and team called Where Pittsburgh Played Oakland's, and we'll describe Oakland's, Historic Sports Venues. And in particular, uh, we get into, uh, this is sort of a, a, a previous generation, maybe even two generations of some of the original venues that professional sports inhabited uh, in Pittsburgh. In particular, we're talking about uh, the Duquesne Gardens, which was essentially the indoor palace uh, for all of the hockey and basketball and, uh, and related uh, indoor exploits in Pittsburgh's early professional sports history. Uh, we get into Pitt Stadium, uh, which largely was uh, a collegiate uh, uh, construct, obviously, for University of Pittsburgh, uh, but also for a period of time, the Pittsburgh Steelers. And of course, we also talk about the uh, similarly legendary facility known as Forbes Field, uh, also uh, in the Oakland section of Pittsburgh, uh, which is kind of the theme of these uh, facilities back in the day. This is where uh, the bulk of these uh, places were kind of, and the sports sort of history was kind of located until at least the the the, the founding of uh, of things like Three River Stadium and uh, uh, and other uh, facilities, the Igloo, obviously in the late '60s. Um, and uh, you heard perhaps uh, the most memorable moment, although there were plenty of others for sure, uh, in in uh, certainly Forbes Field's history. Maybe even Pittsburgh's sports history, although that's both highly debatable. The uh, championship clinching home run by uh, Bill Mazeroski uh, in the 1960 World Series, uh, by many accounts, perhaps uh, the most exciting uh, World Series game of all time it was Game Seven, tied at nine, the Pirates and the New York Yankees, uh, and that call from Forbes Field. Um, somewhat uh, uh, full of uh, uh, inconsistencies, some malapropisms uh, from the uh, legendary, however, Chuck Thompson, uh, not uh, a play-by-play guy for Pittsburgh by any means. Now, that was from uh, the NBC uh, radio broadcast, uh, National it was. He was on that call um, for that, uh, that, uh, that game. And... Um, uh, you sort of hear there uh, sort of the chaos, but uh, in essence, make no mistake, uh, that flub uh, filled uh, call of the um, of that game, uh, that World Series uh, was uh, certainly uh, indicative of the excitement that was uh, all over the Pittsburgh area by uh, defeating the mighty New York Yankees in that 1960 World Series. That happened at Forbes Field, but a lot of other stuff happened at Forbes Field too. Um, 
not only baseball, but uh, the beginnings of football, uh, the very first uh, American Football League in the 1930s, uh, the original home of the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, even the uh, even when they were known uh, in uh, some other uh, other forms, they were known as the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, for a while. And there's a reason for that. We'll hear that in our conversation coming up with uh, with Dave Finoli. Um, and also, interestingly, um, the uh, one year home, the one season home, 1967 of the National Professional Soccer League, Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, excuse me, Pittsburgh Phantoms. I, I, I'm confusing Philadelphia because uh, I'm I'm now sort of waxing and waning into the world of 1940s um, uh, NFL football, uh, where the Cardinals of Chicago and the Pittsburgh Steelers for Card Pit that one year, that one season, but also the Steagles, one of our earliest episodes. Uh, look at look up in your uh, your history books for that episode. Um, where Philadelphia, the Eagles, and the Pittsburgh Steelers combined for a season. And these are during the war years, and you've, we've talked about this in previous episodes. Uh, but they uh, called Forbes Field home as well, both of those contracted uh, NFL franchises. So uh, a, a lots, of, lots of great history uh, to be found in all of these places. And if you stick around, we'll also touch on, for very briefly, but memorably, uh, a place also uh, part of this uh, this lore, although not uh, really any any pro franchises uh, of memory, the Fitzgerald Fieldhouse. And uh, if you're a, an original Big East basketball fan, uh, you'll want to stay tuned and hear a special clip uh, and perhaps the most uh, amazing memory in the long history of that place, the Fitzgerald Fieldhouse. Uh, perhaps you'll know what I'm talking about, but uh, stay tuned for that. You'll hopefully remember uh, as we have uh, that clip for you and that memory as well. All of that coming up with our pal, our return guest, Dave Finoli, holy Finoli, as we talk about Pittsburgh's outdoor and indoor first generation, let's call them, uh, sports cathedrals, Oakland's historic sports venues, the Oakland section of Pittsburgh, where Pittsburgh played, coming up in a mere moment's time. Uh, a little promotional thing. Well, let's, uh, you know, we like to, uh, when we talk about particular cities and regions, uh, we like to especially dial up our pals at oldschoolshirts.com. Because as you know, when you go to oldschoolshirts.com, not only will you uh, be met with uh, a, a, an awesome array of t-shirt collections, as the name implies, from the old school. Uh, if you're into dead malls, perhaps uh, brands of the past or beer brands of the past, amusement parks, perhaps, uh, food locations, um, perhaps nightclubs or even radio stations and restaurants and stadiums and that and the like. Uh, and yes, of course, various professional sports teams, especially those of your, uh, all you got to do is go to oldschoolshirts.com and they got a whole bunch of different uh, tabs and collections and stuff. But the easiest thing to do you can look up by league, uh, but go to the cities section. And literally, you'll see most of the major cities in these uh, here United States and also in Canada. Uh, just search up, uh, just go into the Northeast tab and uh, scroll down to Pittsburgh. And what are you going to find at OldSchoolShirts.com and the Pittsburgh section? Well, again, just about everything you could ever imagine from the past. Uh, commemorated in high quality and reasonably priced T-shirt form. 
Things like not only sports teams like the Pittsburgh Pipers, both versions of the ABA, or the Homestead Grays or the Pittsburgh Condors or the Pittsburgh Hornets, uh, maybe even the Pittsburgh Spirit of the old MISL. I mean, the Pittsburgh Stingers of the old CISL, on and on and on. There are also memories of uh, of great uh, locations where some of these sports and teams played, uh, such as the aforementioned Forbes Field. Great shirt there. The Igloo uh, from our previous episodes and, and uh, discussions. Great shirt devoted to them. Uh, uh, them. It. The old Igloo. Three Rivers Stadium. You know, on and on and on. Um, even the Pittsburgh Pisces, right? Uh, uh, the team that lives on in A Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, right? That uh, wonderful film from the 70s. Uh, all of those things and more. We're talking Pittsburgh, you name it, but also all kinds of other uh, 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 places, uh, cities, and and similar uh, from just about any any major metropolitan area you can think of. Uh, all that kind of stuff and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. They're adding more stuff all the time. So you want to bookmark and visit and purchase, wink, wink, early and often. And don't forget, please don't forget, for your sake and ours, the promo code good seats that's the promo code good seats for 10 percent off every stinking thing you put in that cart at old school shirts.com uh they're based in cincinnati another wonderful city and uh, we thank pf wilson and his friends there at old school shirts.com for their continued support of this ridiculous little show all right Let's step into more ridiculousness, shall we? Let's go deep, way deep into Pittsburgh sports history. We're going to talk about some of these old places no longer with us. Most of them no longer with us, uh, mostly centered in the Oakland section of Pittsburgh. Let's talk about where Pittsburgh played, shall we? Here's our conversation with Dave Finoli we had just a couple of days ago. Welcome back to the show, Dave. And um, as always, friends, please enjoy. The volume of stuff that you and your cohorts in uh, in the Steel City keep putting out on various aspects of, of Pittsburgh sports history is uh, is um, uh, wondrous. And um, here we are again uh, with uh, yet another title. Um, and maybe you can yeah. explain for our audience uh, your role in that and the the little assemblage of people and your little nickname for for such assemblages. That uh, what you've been doing and and some of the other titles and. Uh, areas of exploration that you uh, you all have been doing over the last couple of years. Not, not a problem. Yeah, I um, I basically will will put together a table of contents. Um, you know, get the ideas going. Sell uh, sell the manuscript. Uh, uh, we've been with the History Press the last few um, uh, the last few ones, and then um, I'll take about half the book and. Uh, well, divvy up some uh, friends who are outstanding historians and uh, um, are outstanding writers to boot and uh, give them an opportunity to uh, pick what chapters they want to do on, on the end of it. That way you get a nice, uh, n- nice collection of different voices to tell these uh, stories of uh, oftentimes forgotten of, of, uh, um, of Pittsburgh sports. And what have you dubbed yourselves on occasion on some of these titles of books? Uh, on we we have two separate things we do. Uh, the one we call ourselves the Association of Gentlemen Pittsburgh Journalists, um, and the other one we uh, we call ourselves the Association of uh, Duquesne uh, Scribes, which is 
when we have everybody from Duquesne University, uh, which is my alma mater. Um, and the other one we use when we have a, a little cross-section of, uh, of uh, people from different universities. And this one, um, we, we chose, uh, there was, uh, I believe, five of us, and we just put it in all our names. So we didn't use uh, the moniker on this one. So, so give me a sense before we get into sort of the specifics of, of this current book, uh, Where Pittsburgh Played, mm-hmm. um, give me a sense mm-hmm. of sort of the genesis of all of this, right? So you all have some kind of either direct or indirect connection uh, to Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm assuming the bulk of you are, are lifelongers uh, or, or at least maybe in, in, in spirit if they've moved on to other places. Um, sort of what what – what uh, uh, spurs you all to do this, and and where has the history of of these teams, these places, et cetera, existed before, and maybe maybe why hasn't it existed before? Well, um, we're all uh, Pittsburgh sports fans. Um, majority, uh, high majority, still live in the area, um, but I mean, you know. Uh, most of these people I've been friends with for most of my life. A um, couple uh, like Tom Rooney and and Doug Cavanaugh and Frank Garland uh, met along the way. Um, Tom, uh, uh, a Duquesne University uh, um, graduate and former uh, president of the Penguins, and uh, you know Frank is is an outstanding. Uh, uh, writer, I was a fan of his. Um, he wrote on several Pittsburgh titles, and Douglas Cavanaugh lives in California. Has only been to Pittsburgh once or twice, but he developed a love of the history of boxing in Pittsburgh, um, which, in the first half of the century, uh, rivaled any city in the country. Um, so, in my mind, the, these guys were chosen not only because they're friends and, and great writers, but but just their immense knowledge of um, of sports in this area. So for the for the uninitiated, uh, can you explain a little bit of the sort of geography and maybe the, the, the perhaps the, the neighborhoods uh, of of Pittsburgh? Um, I know we've kind of uh, nibbled at it in previous conversations, both with you, Tom Rooney, et cetera. Um, but the, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the name Oakland may be confusing to people who are not from the region. And, and I think it's important to kind of clarify. Sure. Strangely enough, uh, when I was a kid. Um, uh, we're talking six, seven years old, um, and just becoming a huge baseball fan. I thought the Oakland A's played in Pittsburgh um, because of it. So, um, you know, it uh, it actually is where the University of Pittsburgh is located. Ninety uh, percent of Oakland is is split between uh, uh, Pitt and uh, Carnegie Mellon University, the former Carnegie Tech, and. Um, it's pretty much uh, while while there are some lifelong residents in the area, it's it's mostly a college town, so to speak. Um, located probably um, um, about two miles from uh, downtown Pittsburgh, so it's it's a very short ride from downtown Pittsburgh. Um, but it is in in essence the college section. There's um, I believe it's Chatham is also located there. So you know three decent sized colleges uh, located in. The, in a small uh, area of land. But in that small area of land, and this is where the focus of the book is, ha- was or has been uh, a cradle, if you will, of, of 
of sports in the Pittsburgh area, a lot of it professional, but obviously a lot of it also collegiate. Um, what is it about the, sort of this section, maybe back in the day, perhaps versus the Heinz Fields or whatever it's called today, and right. uh, the right. Three Rivers that came obviously prior and and all the sort of more downtown-ish kind of facilities that exist today? Well, uh, I was um, I was talking to Tom about it, and you know we both it just kind of hit us that sports between really 1909 and, and 1960, when the Civic Arena was built, every major sporting event happened pretty much between a few block area. Um, before we decided to do the book, I actually started there. Forbes Field wall still exists. Um, they never tore it down, um, a section of the wall. So I started there. And I walked up to where the Duquesne Gardens were, which was the indoor arena, the big indoor arena at Pittsburgh at the time. Then walked where Pitt Stadium stood and then uh, finished my my walk um, where the Fitzgerald Fieldhouse stands now, which used to house Pitt's basketball and now is the home of their nationally ranked uh, volleyball team. And... It was only like a 15, 20 minute walk, literally, and I was taking my time. So literally, you could have seen any major sporting event in Pittsburgh within a 10 or 15 minute walk of each other. And we thought this is, you know, in a city this size, that that was kind of unique. And uh, the stadiums weren't built at once. They were built, you know, uh, years apart from each other. Um Duquesne Gardens have been up since the end of the 19th century. Um, Forbes Field was the first uh, uh, brick and uh, uh, brick and mortar uh, uh, stadium built in the National League. Uh, Shad Park being the first one in baseball, and then um, Pitt Stadium was built in 1925. And uh, in the uh, 50s, they um, had a dump of a basketball arena and, and decided to uh, build the Fitzgerald Fieldhouse, which uh, is nearing its its final days as a, a new um, volleyball uh, um, and wrestling arena are being built on campus. So um, at one point in time, as I said, it housed every major collegiate and uh, and professional team in in, uh, in Pittsburgh. All right, well, let's start. Um, so there are really two areas. I mean, obviously, Pitt Stadium, um, uh, almost, I think, exclusively, if I'm not mistaken, was was for uh, University of Pittsburgh, uh, correct? Uh, they were. It, 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 was, it, was, it was not. Um, the Carnegie Mellon also played their games there. And Duquesne University, which played the bulk of their games at Forbes Field, um, also played some football uh, at the um, at Pitt Stadium. It was a um, at one point in time, as the 30s were coming to an end, three of the top 15 teams in the country resided only two miles from each other in Carnegie Tech, uh, Pitt, and uh, Duquesne. But Carnegie Pitt Tech, uh, when they were a major football team, did play all their games at Pitt Stadium. From a professional perspective, though, um, mm -hmm. it did have a couple of dalliances with some pro games, right? Not very much, but they did, if I'm not mistaken, 
house the Steelers for a couple of seasons or maybe alternated some games, if I'm not, if I'm not, if I've got that right. They, they did. They actually moved over there when Three River Stadium, although it didn't come into its completion until 1970, was actually formulated in the mid-50s to the point where the Pirates sold uh, Forbes Field to the University of Pittsburgh, which ended up building their their um, famed uh, uh, graduate business school there and, and another school uh, named after the chancellor um, in the 70s, Wesley Posvar. But that had all come to a, a head in the late 50s, and the Pirates only thought they were going to be there for a couple of years. Um, so the Steelers, um, thinking they were only going to be there a couple of years, um, ended up having to make a deal with Pitt at Pitt Stadium um, since Forbes Field had been sold um, to um, um, play their games there, thinking that you know they, they wouldn't have a home in, in the 60s. So they ended up staying there through the 1960s, and um, Chuck Knoll's first year was at Pitt Stadium, and he won his first game as a coach and then lost the next 13. So if anybody thought the Chuck Knoll era was nothing but winning, it took him a few years before he were, was able to get the Steelers to uh, a championship level. And that first year was the last year at Pitt Stadium, and they were played uh, – uh, one of their worst, if not their worst seasons in the history of the franchise. So, okay. So let me get this straight. So the Steelers, then uh, they only played that one season at Pitts. No, they played. No, no, no. They, they, they played the whole decade. Got it. Okay. So, so yeah. Yeah. So essentially Pitt was the Pitt stadium was essentially sort of a, a, a multiple home. Then it was between sort of a, a, the, the college team and the Steelers. I mean, what, but Pitt owned the stadium, though, right? So I'm guessing they Pitt, were sort of the Pitt, lessee. Yeah, Pitt, Pitt owned the stadium. And they, the reason it got to be as grand as it was, when they were building it, the chancellor, Chancellor Bo, uh, Bowman, was not a fan of the football program, and he was putting all his focus into the other major building on campus, which remains today the Cathedral of Learning, which at one point in time was the largest uh, on-campus building in the country. And because he wasn't paying attention, the $1.1 million budget to build Pitt Stadium grew to $2.1 million. And when he got the bill, he was quite irritated and was kind of the team was kind of forced into paying its players, uh, which got him the best players in the land. And for nine years, they were among, if not the best program in the land, winning uh, five national championships. Um, so Pitt Stadium kind of had a hand in that uh, as it doubled, ended up doubling uh, the cost of it uh, d- during the time it was built. But yes, they, they were the owners of it. And ironically, the basketball arena for Pitt basketball was located under one of the gates in Pitt Stadium. It was a small facility, but it until the Fitzgerald Fieldhouse was built, it was this cold, dank um, arena where the visiting team had a locker room outside the stadium had to walk in the cold to get into the stadium and supposedly fans never took their coat off because there was no heating all right so here's my source of confusion so and then we'll sort of radiate backwards and forwards into this right the Steelers okay for a period of time I want to say it was between what 58 and 63 ish Mm -hmm. it looks to me that they kind of shared 
or alternated or bounced between or some other <laughs> description between playing home games at Forbes Field, the venerable baseball stadium, and and multi-purpose, if you will, before that was even a term, and Pitt Stadium. Do, do I have this right that some of the seasons uh, they were either alternating or either during the season or alternating from season to season during that period of time? Actually, between um, 1933, when they came into existence, and I want to say either 60 or 61, they were at Forbes Field. Um, when they came to Pitt Stadium, they were at Pitt Stadium. Now, they might have played a couple games at Pitt Stadium um, when they were in Forbes Field, but it wasn't it wasn't considered like a co-home or a, a home until then. It was, it was only when they thought there would be no Forbes Field existing that um, they ended up um, going to Pitt Stadium. Interesting. Okay, got it. So because uh, you, 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 the Internet can sort of be a, uh, uh, a misleading sort of character, uh, but it, uh, it looks like there was some overlap. And I wonder, too, I guess aloud, if there were um, perhaps some conflicts, right, either uh, college versus uh, pro football in Pitt Stadium or maybe even a playoff dalliance or two uh, on the baseball side that perhaps – force the team to kind of go between one one stadium and a, one field and another uh, during that period of time, as well as the uncertainty. Yeah, it, it might have been early on. Um, there might have been some conflicts, but as far as college football, by that point in time, uh, I don't think Duquesne would have, would have pushed them out. Um, and that's who would have been playing at the time, mainly at, at Forbes field. Um and unfortunately, between 1925 and 1960, there were no playoff games for the Pirates, as they uh, they had a 35 year old 35 year layoff between the World Series at that point. Um, but they a regular season game might have pushed them into Pitt Stadium for a time or two. But I, I wouldn't consider Pitt Stadium their home at that point. Sure. All right. So so let's let's go back then to Forbes because. In many respects, for the length of its uh, its existence, and it's now an, uh, an historical landmark on a on a state level and certainly mm-hmm. city level and stuff. Um, this is back in 1909 when it was created, and it didn't close until 1970. Talk about venerable, but I guess the question really is there. It seems to me like ostensibly in 1909 it was all Pittsburgh Pirates baseball as the rationale for the stadium, but I either through foresight or just sheer uh, need, it really kind of became the Pittsburgh's first generation multi-purpose stadium. Is it, is it probably more because it was the only, if you will, game in town to domicile the fledgling football team or, or a soccer team uh, or Negro league team? Um. Um, or was it was it envisioned as being more than just a baseball home? It it was envisioned as being a baseball home. The major reason it was built there, the um, stadium for the Pirates before that, Exposition uh, Park, was built where Three River Stadium is built was built and where Heinz Field is now. But the problem was there was no flood control, so the outfield would often flood. There were um, ground rules in case the outfield was flood. If it hits a miss, it's a, it's a double, things like that. Um, Fred Clark, the manager of the Pirates, 
actually developed the first tarp um, to cover the infield because of the flooding. <clears throat> so Oakland was chosen because it was as far away from the river in the city of Pittsburgh as uh, as they were going to get. So um, it was basically envisioned for baseball and um, Barney Dreyfus, you know, who was, certainly was a man who I'm sure didn't mind collecting the revenue from the other sports. Uh, I, I'm sure there's no question uh, that they would allow these teams to play there when they had their chances. They played a lot of football at Exposition Park too. Um, but it was the home for a lot of colleges back then. Um, Washington and Jefferson, who um, won a, uh, a a national championship, I believe, in 1921, um, the famous 0-0 tie at the Rose Bowl against the powerful California team, um, played some games there. Uh, Pitt was obviously playing their games there until 1925. Um Duquesne, as they were in the beginnings of their program, were playing there, as as was Carnegie Tech, um, which um, upset Newt Rockney and Notre Dame at uh, Forbes Field. Um, so it, it was, and, and there were a lot of fights there over the course of uh, um, the history of Forbes Field, including the uh, great uh, memorable Jersey Joe Walcott as a Charles uh, uh, fight in the late 50s. So it it was home to a lot of different sports, and I'm not sure it was envisioned that way. But uh, as I said, the way Exposition Park was was used, there's no surprise that it ended up that way. So Pitt was was playing football there collegiately, almost from yes. from the beginning of Forbes, Forbes's debut in 1909. Yeah, yeah, until 25. They had a quite a bit of time in there. Well, so, okay, so that's it's, it's really especially interesting because I guess the uh, the as the Steelers came about in the then fledgling NFL, it didn't. Uh, there was really no other. It just became the obvious place to play. There really wasn't any other place uh, of some no. sub- substantial seating and and uh, arrangement really for 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 them to play. How how was based on your research? How was that mm-hmm. relationship of the Steelers and the Pirates and Forbes Field, right? It, it's clear, at least in hindsight, that the Pirates are probably the, the first and foremost tenant of of Forbes, or was it somewhat cordial? I can't imagine it was cordial in the beginning. Well, it, it actually was. Uh, I mean, don't forget to pay. It was 1933 when the Steelers came into, into being, so it was quite a few years um, after the stadium opened. Um and Art Rooney was was a huge fan of the Pirates, and and you know that because that was the name of the Steelers uh, for their first seven or eight seasons, the Pittsburgh Pirates, um, and it was done in honor of the baseball team. So he was he was a huge fan of 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 the uh, Pirates, and um, which was by the way very common for fledging NFL teams, right? We've seen these name shares sure. and and the the baseball ownership trying to sort of get in on maybe what was the next big pro sports thing in football. Yeah. But it, I mean, it was a struggling enterprise through the first, uh, uh, probably for about 20, 25 years after that till, till the sixties that it started becoming a big thing. Um, the Steelers were definitely second, second place in the city at that point. Um, if not third, um, to, to um, college uh, football teams, but um, 
you know, they, they didn't get a team until we had the uh, Pennsylvania blue laws back then, which prohibited sporting events from being played on a Sunday. So the reason it took so long to get a team is they had to wait for the blue laws to be um, taken away. So the Steelers could play on a Sunday. Um, In fact, there was a little lag time between when um, the Pennsylvania legislature voted to voted to uh, do away with them and when it actually happened. So the first few weeks of the Steelers were basically played in the middle of the week because of that um, before finally getting to play on Sundays. But, um, but no, there, there was no, I mean, Art Rooney was a huge fan of the pirates. He was a baseball player. He was a very, very good minor, minor league baseball player, along with um, one of the best boxers in the country. He had uh, qualified for the 1920 Olympics in boxing and uh, uh, ended up not going, but um, you know, he was, he was a baseball fan first, even though he made his fortune in football. Um, but that fortune didn't happen for a while. Um, it took it took a while before the Steelers, uh, Pirates, and then nineteen forty, I believe, is when they became the Steelers. I do not know the answer to um, this, but do you, do you have any sense as to why they the name was changed from the Pirates after the thirty nine season to Steelers in the in nineteen forty, especially given that they were still playing in the same stadium and were right. essentially, you know, loved by. I think, both I think, I think it was, it was more or less to differentiate the team um, against the the Pirates were what the Steelers are in the city today was, was the Pirates. I mean, they were that much loved among the other teams. Um, so it, it I'm, from what I had read, it was done to kind of differentiate things a little bit. Clearly, though, um, as the franchise uh, floundered or uh, like the collective league during the war years, uh, tried to keep, uh, things afloat. We've talked about this on, on previous episodes. Um, Forbes was also the home of the hastily, uh, crafted Steagles of 1943 and the, um, oddly and maybe aptly named card pit of 1944 yes. as well. Was there any, um, I'm curious as to, uh, the, how the stadium and, or the fan base, uh, handled those two odd creations, those two years, right? It seems like people were just kind of doing what they could to at least keep pro football alive in Pittsburgh. Well, it was, and it was Art Rooney and his, um, thought, uh, the league first, which is why Pittsburgh ended up in the AFC, um, agreeing to move when, when the leagues consolidated um, uh, to make an even number. Um, and it, nobody wanted to move, so Bart Rooney, you know, league first uh, decided he would he would move. Um, back then, there wasn't enough players. So if you wanted to stay alive, you had to combine some teams, and then Art Rooney was, um, was at the forefront of, of, of being there for the league and, and what, it, what it needed. Um, the Steagles actually were a winning team, and the, neither the Steelers nor the Eagles um, had had much winning in their in their uh, the beginning of uh, their their first decade of existence. Um, now the the Steagles were led primarily by young members of the Eagles, who would end up being NFL champions a, a couple of years later, um, and um, 
Well, I'm not sure the city was was necessarily in love with it. They certainly weren't in love with the carpets, as there was no Pennsylvania connection, and and uh, that was considered, if not the worst NFL team of all time, in the top uh, two or three. Um, but I mean, there there was you know even today there's there's a lot written about the Steagles and and what they meant, and and um, you know the city liked winning uh, uh, football, which as I said they didn't have much experience with by that point. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, they were undefeated at Forbes Field uh, in their couple games they played there. But um, luckily for them, it was primarily uh, led by Eagle players, um, which kind of led them to the win. But, you know, City liked winning. So I, I guess, uh, and they still kind of uh, like talking about the Steagles, and, and there's been a lot written about them. Um, so... Uh, you know, they're considered more of Pittsburgh than the carpets certainly were. All right, what's this? Prize picks? My goodness, of course, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports is prize picks. What is it? Well, I just literally it's straightforward and the simplest and most fun way you can do daily fantasy sports. All you got to do is pick as few as two or as many as five different players in a sport or, frankly, across a whole multitude of sports and simply predict whether those players will get more or less than their projection. Maybe in baseball, that's strikeouts. Uh, They're going to pitch more or less strikeouts than predicted. Uh, How about uh, in football? That could be touchdown passes. Uh, in basketball, that could be three-point uh, shot attempts made, uh, etc. Uh, literally, all you got to do is pick whether they're more or less than their predicted outcomes. And you can choose and mix and match sports as well. You don't have to pick two or three or four or five players in just one sport. No, you can pick a couple of players in across different sports. And boy, oh boy, when I say different sports, Prize Picks has a wide variety. It's all the major leagues and sports that you can think of from the NFL and Major League Baseball, all the way into various niche sports. Sports? Sports? No, sports like MMA or disc golf, uh, perhaps even lacrosse or um, various forms of boxing or even esports. Prize Picks has daily fantasy picks for you across all of those and more. Again, try them out. It's really easy and it's a hell of a lot of fun, and you can win big bucks too. You can go the flex play model which basically means you don't have to choose and succeed with every single one of your picks, but you'll still get paid. Or you can go the power play mode, which basically rewards you with more money if you get every single one of your predictions correct. It's awesome, and it's uh, fun to play for sure, and that really uh, uh, brings uh, uh, your live sports uh, viewing into uh, a whole different realm of excitement. And of course, we've got a promo for you. As well, so all you got to do is download the Prize Picks app on your uh, Android or your Apple device, or go to PrizePicks.com. That's P-R-I-Z-E-P-I-C-K-S.com, and sign up and play your daily fantasy sports right now. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code Good Seats. So if you deposit 100 bucks, Prize Picks will give you 100 bucks. If you deposit 50, Prize Picks will give you 50. Again, don't forget to enter the promo code GOODSEATS when you sign up at prizepicks.com or on the Prize Picks app and get that instant deposit match 
right up to 100 bucks. Go for it. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Thank you, Prize Picks. And now back to our conversation. Uh, Pitt Stadium was um, opened in 1925 and was ostensibly more, well, was it more of a football-oriented stadium? I know some baseball was played there, too. Um, but- it, it, it was 95% football. Um, the other tenants were the Pitt track and field team and the Pitt soccer team. Um, and they were, I mean, uh, track had, had a, a notable history, but soccer really didn't um, and, until the, the current uh, programs, um, which are both nationally ranked. But um, it was 95% a football stadium. If they played baseball there, it, it was very little um, that the Pitt team would have played there. Yeah, I guess to an outsider then, I'm just curious as to why being it more football-centric, why perhaps the Steelers perhaps didn't uh, somehow uh, work towards Pitt being uh, a better stadium environment than a much more baseball-centric and and uh, oriented, I guess, in terms of seats and all that stuff at Forbes Field. Um, was it because of the ownership structure of the of the baseball pirates? Was was Rooney more? I mean, I just curious as to maybe why. A, I, 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 um, I don't know a hundred percent, but I know he had a good relationship with the pirates, and I'm sure that was a major part of it. As I said, he didn't move over to Pitt till he felt he was kind of forced to. Um, and he didn't think he was going to be there that long. Um, as government red tape took what should have been a, a stadium built in the early 60s, and it wasn't until the 70s um, um, that it ended up opening. So we're, we're talking 12 to 15 years between the time they approved Three River Stadium and the time it actually opened. So it was a it was a long while. How about on the baseball front? Um... Uh, people also sort of forget that the Homestead Grays, a legendary team of the Negro Leagues, played more than their fair share of games at Ford, Forbes Field. I, I, I don't think exclusively, um, but but quite a bit. No, no. Green, Greenlee Field um, was was a few miles down the road. Unfortunately, it wasn't in the Oakland section of Pittsburgh, which it, it wasn't included here. But it was. Um, one of the, if not the first, black-owned uh, um, stadium in the country, uh, built and owned. Um, it was built for the Pittsburgh Crawfords, which was Pittsburgh's other legendary uh, Negro League team. And the Grays did play some games there. But if you had to, uh, well, they didn't play all their games at the, at Forbes in the 30s. If you had to name a home field for it, that would have been the home field, would have been Forbes. And how much... Um... Uh, were you able to determine uh, I, the original, I guess, and how many different variations have there been over the years of the quote-unquote American Football League? There was this thing called the Pittsburgh Americans in 36 and 37 at Forbes. Um, perhaps yeah. maybe for the first sort of, you know, real true go-round, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, perhaps uh, almost to the point of giving sort of a, uh, a challenge, if you will, to the fledgling NFL, which was still very much fledgling, right? So nothing was sort of guaranteed that the NFL was sort of... um, They, too, also called Forbes Field home, and I got to think that was a little concerning and consterning to the Steelers as well. How Two teams playing in the same facility. It it was, but it wasn't unlike when the Maulers came here in the 80s. I mean, 
the Steelers pretty much uh, um, outdrew it, uh, uh, got the news coverage. They may have been threatened at first. I don't think they were threatened once it was taking place. So it it, it didn't really come close to succeeding in Pittsburgh, but they were there. I mean, you know, it it uh, it certainly was another team that uh, called Pittsburgh home. Um, another uh, team that's obviously near and dear to my heart. I think you you mentioned it a little bit in uh, in this book. Um, is the one year wonder and the only real outdoor professional top tier although there have been some lower level teams and indoor was soccer in 1967, obviously Forbes field a little long in the tooth, uh, getting along in the tooth at that point, pirates moved out in 70. Um, but this national professional soccer league domiciled one of its teams for one season called the Pittsburgh phantoms. What what, what were you able to determine or learn from that? Or has this, that sort of sort of been hard to find and or constrained to history? No, 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 it wasn't hard to find. That actually, I can, I can say it was probably my favorite chapter to, to research because I, the only knowledge I had of the team was it existed. Um, and basically, as we found out uh, through the research, they had um, the members uh, of the newly formed Penguins, a lot of the owners of the Penguins were the ones that bought um, the Phantoms. In 1966, you had England... Um, uh, winning the World Cup, kind of firing up soccer in, in this um, area for a little bit. And um, they thought they could make a run at soccer because of the excitement uh, of uh, um, the World Cup. <clears throat> and um, they went and they, they put together a lot of high-priced players, but they weren't that good. And um, as it turned out, um they put themselves into bankruptcy after the first year and almost destroyed the penguins along with it. Um, because a lot of these guys were owners of the penguins too, and now they were having financial issues. So, you know, it was, it started out well, they did well their first couple games and then it just died as the year went on. Um, I mean, they found out the guy who was their talent coordinator was also the agent for these players and, sucking more money out of the phantoms uh, than they probably would have had to had it been done ethically. Um, so it, it was a very interesting chapter to, to research. Um, and then to find out it almost was the end of the Penguins um, in only the first or second year because of it. Um, well, I thought was kind of an interesting point. I did not realize that the Penguins early history, I mean, it's actually, this is very interesting because uh, 1967, the one season of the Phantoms and the one season of the National Professional Soccer League. And we've we've talked about this in the past. It was one of two pro leagues that came out of nowhere in, in the, the shadow or the uh, the halo of the 1966 World Cup in England. A lot of enthusiasm, a lot of baseball owners got there, got themselves involved thinking this was the next big thing. Um, and then obviously a merger the, the next year, MPSL, the rogue league because they didn't have the official sanctioning from uh, FIFA, the world body. And, um, but they did have a television contract with CBS Um, lots to unpack there, but, but the timing is, is interesting. And now this is only sort of uh, hitting me over the head. This is also when the NHL was expanding for the first time with Pittsburgh being one of those franchises. So that's, 
Talk about biting off more than you can chew. I mean, it's got to be tough enough to get a new NHL franchise going as well as the the arena, the igloo that we're talking about in previous episodes. But but getting a, a, a soccer franchise brand new at the same time, that's nuts. Yeah. 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 And as I said, we, we may not have been talking about five Stanley Cups and, uh, and uh, the financial issue gone a little more south. I, I guess the question there, maybe we don't have an answer to it, is to, I guess the question is why? Right. Given an expansion of the NHL, uh, getting a franchise domiciled there, why would one be distracted by this fledgling thing in soccer, of all things, on top of that? They thought it was they thought it was going to be the next hot thing. Everybody had always in my lifetime, just about every year, you know, soccer is going to be a big thing here. Soccer is the next big thing here. And it really never became the next big thing until the last 10 years. Um. Whereas now uh, the MSL or MLS averages about twenty five thousand a game, but it was that enthusiasm um, that uh, in nineteen sixty six that okay now it's biggest you know because it's been the biggest game in the world for how long, and um, you know everybody's always predicted it was going to be the next big thing here, but. Do you think there's more to be discovered in the Pittsburgh Phantoms story? Do you think maybe perhaps you or or your your band of merry uh, sports writers perhaps could uh, uh, be convinced to maybe go a little deeper into this story because it just to me it already seems fascinating and under underreported about this sort of uh, combination of of Pittsburgh Penguins and 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 that that timing and all that stuff sounds like there's some drama uh, that sort of hasn't been really discovered. Um, I, I I mean there might be a little more for the soccer club per se. I think. You know, more of the story would be after, after the soccer team. Um, you know, as far as did this, was this one of the major causes for the Penguins having some? I mean, in their first ten years, I mean, it was almost every other year we were afraid of losing the team because of financial issues. Was this just the beginning of it, or was it something that remained consistent, or you know, throughout that? That would be probably the story. Of um, of soccer that still needs to be uncovered. Um, ironically, they ended up uh, uh, buying the indoor team, uh, the Spirit, um, which had been wildly popular at, at the beginning of their tenure and kind of kind of waited off towards the end. But there was a point when the Spirit were popular that um, there was talk: Do we? Sell the penguins and keep the spirit, or sell the spirit and keep the penguins. So there, there was no guarantee that uh, that soccer wasn't going to uh, mix the penguins, or at least force them to be sold a second time. Yeah, the irony is very, very strong there for sure. Uh, given and 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 the, the spirit too had their own had their own uh, storylines, right? I mean, they they kind of went dormant for a year or so, and they were one of the original franchises, and they came back in the MISL and. And all that kind of stuff, and that sort of, uh, I that just the, the endless, endless fascination there. Oh yeah, absolutely. I remember as a as a college freshman in '79, and I mean it was fun to go. I mean, we spent a lot of time at Spirit Games uh, during during that time period. It was a good product uh, that unfortunately outpriced itself um, because they went after more expensive talent um, as time went on. Not not the Spirit necessarily. Well, the Spirit did. They signed a guy named Stan Terlicky, who was 
um, a great Polish soccer player. And, um, you know, he was, uh, he, he was a guy that kind of led them during their, their good, uh, good playoff era. All right. Well, let's uh, let's just put a, a pin in uh, in the uh, Forbes Field thing. I maybe just a couple of moments on uh, its quality uh, as a baseball ballpark uh, and its uniquenesses, um, and perhaps maybe how and why it sort of came to its demise in the late '60s, 1970 or so. Um, it was it was kind of uh, from a baseball perspective um, was. Uh, uh, Kind of known as a pitcher-friendly ballpark, if I'm not mistaken. Huge outfield, yeah. Huge outfield, huge foul uh, foul area. So yeah, it was very much a pitcher uh, park. Um, <clears throat> I always tell a, a story, and I've, I've mentioned a few of the books that Forbes Field is rem- remembered and romanticized because it hasn't been around for a while. The stands they built down the third base side, half of them you couldn't see home plate from. Um, it had gone into disarray. And I remember when my dad was going to the first game at Three Rivers in 1970. Now, I was eight at the time. And um, he came in the room and was talking to me about it. He knew I was a huge baseball fan. And I asked him, Dad, why, why are you more excited about this than Forbes Field? He said, Son, the place is in disarray, and it smelled like stale beer and urine. So people weren't unhappy Forbes Field was going away in 1970. They were unhappy Forbes Field went away in 1990s, 20-some years removed. Um, It was was not necessarily the perfect place to watch a game, Um, nor was Three Rivers for that standpoint. It It was a... Not a great baseball stadium, but when you win two World Series in eight years and capture so many division titles, it's the memories that make the stadium great. And that's what made Three Rivers great for baseball. Um, but um, Forbes Field was was decaying at the end, decaying badly, and you needed a new stadium. Um, I, I'm sure, uh, and from what I read, it was going to be too costly to fix up Forbes Field, and you were getting a multi-team stadium in, um, in three-hour stadium. So it was great for the time period when it was built, had a lot of memories in it, um, but had it existed today, the infrastructure in, in Pittsburgh, that's why Pitt Stadium was not a good facility towards the end. The infrastructure is one road out, one road in. Um, and to to go to a game at Pitt Stadium in the 90s, you had to get there um, about three or four hours before to find a parking space. Hopefully, it's far enough away from the stadium that you don't have to sit in traffic for two or three hours. And I imagine Forbes Field had similar issues because um, it was it was just a couple blocks below where Pitt Stadium was. And it had the same issues, one road in, one road out. So I might have been nice to romanticize about Forbes Field staying, but the logistics of it, the infrastructure of it, um, and the way it was at the time, it needed to go. 
Well, sure. And also when it was built, right, it was sort of part of that sort of generation of the uh, first generation, if you will, of those steel and concrete facilities that were essentially replacing yeah. the largely wooden constructions of the wooden. decades before that. Absolutely. It was a um, um, it was uh, uh, the second built in, in baseball after Shad Park. So, yeah, it was right at the beginning and it was considered a palace when it was when it was built. Uh, and um, uh, still pieces of it exist. I, I believe there's a home plate that sort of lives on somewhere. Maybe I think in somewhere in the University of Pittsburgh's it, it, facility. Uh, it, it exists in Podsworth Hall. It's not in the exact place it was, um, uh, which would be like right outside a door um, at, at the hall if it was put in as exact place. But it's it's put in the middle of the lobby um, so people can, can see that. And about half the wall was left intact. Um, and on October 13th, the anniversary of Mazeroski's home run every year, um, the game is played on radio. Um, hundreds of fans come down every year, and it starts at 1 o'clock and ends at 3.37, uh, just like it did in real life. So, um, you know, it's kind of a neat place uh, to visit. And on that day, it's if you have ever have the chance to go it's it's a lot of fun a lot of a lot of good memories yeah i mean and i obviously some legendary games of the of the time um uh not only uh, of major league baseball but also negro league baseball um certainly football but uh, you also mentioned earlier boxing uh, maybe a moment or two about uh just how uh significant a venue forbes was for boxing and maybe perhaps at that time uh, why boxing was such a thing back in the day, open-air stadium in particular. Pittsburgh had many world champions um, over the uh, course of, of the first 50 years of, of the 20th century, Perry Grab, Jackie Wilson, um, Billy Kahn, just to name a few. Um, the great Charlie Burley, who is considered one of the top 10 middleweights of all time, um, who never had a chance, uh, was an African-American boxer, um, never had a chance to fight for the title, partially because of that, partially because during World War II when he fought, a lot of titles were frozen while the champions were off fighting. Um, but they were all from Pittsburgh. It was a huge sport in the area. Um, and uh, some of the bigger fights, um, Billy Kahn fought there quite a few times at, at Forbes Field, as well as they all fought at the Duquesne Gardens, which... Um, was the Civic Arena before the Civic Arena was built and was located about two blocks um, um, to the east of, uh, of, of Forbes Field. But, um, you know, it, it, was, it was a huge, um, a huge deal in Pittsburgh at the time and well attended. In fact, um, the biggest pirate uh, um, crowd of the year, I believe it was 1941 when Conn fought Lewis, came to a fight which was in essence the first pay-per-view fight they stopped the pirate game in the first or second inning as the fight was starting and the fans listened to the fights uh, from new york uh, con lewis won um until it was over then they resumed the game and the game ended up being postponed um because it went past one o'clock which was the national league curfew for um games um but that's how big it was that even they drew the biggest pirate game of all or the pirate crowd of the year. Um, so people could hear the Con Lewis fight. 
it was pretty huge. That also speaks to the fact that Pittsburgh has just always been a damn good sports town. Um, and and you mentioned yeah. it, so let's why don't we quickly segue over there to the Duquesne Gardens because, um, well, it was called the Duquesne Garden until 1940. I guess it was 18. Yeah. 1890 or so, 18, it broke ground, I think, in 1886, but I, I, who knows when it was actually, I think the ice rink didn't happen until the 1895 or so. 1890s, yeah. Right? Yeah, that's um, correct. But then in 1940, um, I guess it was rechristened to the gardens. Um, yes. But maybe a little bit of sort of early and uh, an ongoing history there, because to your point, right, this was the the indoor facility, if you will, for the bulk of the early part of the century. And when it came to hockey uh, and even a little bit of basketball, uh, this was both the collegiate as well as the professional sort of place for the vast majority of those, uh, of those endeavors. Absolutely. Um, We had a team called the Pittsburgh Yellow Jackets, uh, which was uh, an amateur team at the beginning of, uh, well, amateur in name only. They, They came out, they were, Paying Canadians, uh, uh, the better Canadian players, such as Hall of Famer Lionel Conacher, to come down. And they won two United States championships um, early on um, at, at the Gardens. They morphed into the Pittsburgh Pirates, which was our NHL team, our first NHL team that few people actually realize that the Penguins weren't the first NHL team in Pittsburgh. Um, the Pirates played there for a few years before they went belly up and, and tried sold the franchise to Philadelphia. Um, but the first lines um, in hockey, it used to be your best five players played the majority of the game. Um, the line system was developed in Pittsburgh as the Hornets were really the first team to utilize that in hockey. Um, and that happened at the gardens. Um, eventually when they left, uh, that's when our more famed team from the AHL, the Pittsburgh Hornets, which um we're here until the Penguins uh, shut up in 60, 67, um, came in and they, they were the key tenant at, uh, at the Duquesne Gardens at that point. Um, Duquesne University basketball was played there. And in the late 30s to, um, to probably about 59 or 60, Duquesne was on par with, with what Duke and Kentucky would be today. They were one of the better teams in the country, in fact, winning the 1955 National Championship when they won the NIT, which was the better of the two tournaments back then. Um, so uh, they, they were a key tenant of the gardens. The ice capades began at the gardens. Um, the actual and, ice capades um, began in the gardens, the actual franchise? Yeah, yeah it, it, um, they were brought in as a... Um, as a um, between periods uh, event, um, and it people actually to see Sonia Henney, which was she was um, a great gold medalist at the time um, in the Olympics, and you know people had come to see her, and the crowds were so big that uh, the owner of of the um, Hornets, John Harris began the ice capades and shows were dedicated to just ice skaters. Um, but that was because of, uh, um, it, it happened at the uh, Duquesne gardens. Um, our one NBA team, uh, the Pittsburgh Ironmen in 1947, the first year, um, 
of the league. It was a Basketball Association of America, which the NBA considers their first season. Um, Pittsburgh Ironmen played there. Um, we're a horrible team, and um, we're, it was voted actually by uh, um, by a website 538 um, as when they did a, a thing for every professional NBA team, they were voted as the worst in the history of the league. So we have that designation at the garden. So it, it was, it was quite a, um, quite a used facility. Yeah. And I think people also forget on the, on the hockey side there, um, uh, the Pittsburgh pirates, there's that name again in the late 1920s in the NHL, people, uh, forget that the original six, actually was preceded by a bunch of teams some of the mongrels some of them more uh, better equipped and and more interesting than uh but the whitewash right uh after that period of time and the pirates were very much a part of the nhl for that period of time in the duquesne gardens yeah yeah absolutely they also moved on to the Philadelphia, become the Quakers for two years as well before the team sort of uh, went its before uh, they yeah went its way and stuff. It went its own way. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But, so uh, tell me, I guess, how much uh, from what you were able to determine um, this history of hockey um, within the Duquesne Gardens? I mean, obviously, that was uh, the, the the fact of that uh, the minor leagues uh, and even on the collegiate level, hockey was obviously. Uh, a substantially interesting uh, pursuit in in uh, in Pittsburgh sports uh, enough that uh, by the mid '60s there was enough of a groundswell to um, uh, for the NHL to finally look at not only expanding itself but to actually looking at Pittsburgh as being one of the first franchises to expand to in 1967. Yes. Yeah. No. It um, you know had had a great history. In fact, the um we found out when we did our book, Pittsburgh First, that the U.S. hockey team began in Pittsburgh. Um, it was put together in Pittsburgh in 1920 um, and sent to the Summer Olympics um, where hockey started um, before ending up in the Winter Olympics. So you have that. You have um, research found a few years ago that the first professional players um, came uh, out of Pittsburgh. So professional hockey started here. So, I, I mean, it has, um, you know, quite a history before the Penguins. Why did it last so long? I mean, this is a facility that essentially was, you know, kind of up and running in the 1890s. Uh, it didn't close until 1956. That's a that's a hell of a run. I, I'm guessing it wasn't necessarily because it was so well-constructed and well-loved, or was it? Hmm. Not necessarily. I, those who play basketball there always criticize the floor as as wet and and uneven. Um, you didn't get true dribbles all the time on it. Um, but with that, it was a shock when it was announced it was coming down. In fact, the Civic Arena wasn't close to being ready, so the Hornets had to be put in in the closet, so to speak, for five years. Um, until the Civic Arena opened up, because uh, they just kind of stunned people. They they sold it. I mean, it was it was sold for profit. Uh, it wasn't taken down for um, because it was decaying or anything like that. But they had a chance, I guess, to make a good deal, and they made it. Well, like a lot of those facilities, right? Uh, I, uh, the turnover between a basketball and a hockey kind of operation, right? Um, 
not always the easiest uh, thing to do. Um, and I'm guessing that, um, you know, modern day uh, needs, especially when you throw in things like musical concerts and whatnot, uh, make it even that much more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. No, it it was not an easy thing by any stretch of the imagination. But um, from all accounts, it seemed like it was a, a little worse than the norm. Um, what, um, what, uh, was sort of the, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the denouement of, of that, of that facility, um, uh, the, the Pittsburgh civic arena, I guess was about three miles away from, from the gardens. Um, that actually began in the late day fifties, the construction of that. Right. So, um, I guess it was essentially people kind of just hanging on at the gardens, hoping that uh, the, the new facility would be done sooner rather than later. Well, yeah, it had been approved again, like three or stadium a lot earlier than it actually opened. Um, and, but it, unfortunately it wasn't until 61 uh, when the facility would open. Um, so uh, as I said, they had a, a, a dormant, uh, the uh, Hornets that finally had a chance to get back on the ice and John Harris, who owned the Hornets, um, actually was given an NBA franchise, uh, that season. Um, he got mad, um, because a player he wanted, um, from the Celtics, uh, uh, Bill Sherman, who was the, um, hall of fame coach. He wanted him to lead his team. And the Celtics kind of reneged on that at the last minute. He got mad, decided he could want an NBA franchise. So he gave up the NBA franchise at that point. Um, and um, guy came in who was given an, uh, a team in the ABL, uh, which was a predecessor to the ABA and had a team called the Pittsburgh Wrens. He had a chance to get the NBA team, but he decided to take the ABL team uh, because he figured he had a better chance to win with a new league rather than taking an expansion team, which ended up being one of the more short-sighted uh, things in, in the Pittsburgh sport history. We could have had an NBA franchise here. Well, we kind of, you kind of did though. Well, not really an NBA franchise, right? The uh, we, we cannot never forget. And we've talked about this on the, uh, the igloo conversations in the past, of course, the mighty Pisces of the fish that saved Pittsburgh. <laughs> which we actually have a chapter in a book. We just began, um, uh, that details the seventies in Pittsburgh. So we, we have, uh, we have a thing on, uh, on, on the Pittsburgh Pisces, uh, uh, being, it was a nice, uh, nice part of it. So let me, let me ask you that. So round out this, uh, the King gardens. I mean, the, um, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, obviously there, there was, um, uh, some opportunity there for Pittsburgh to be more of, um, of a basketball town, obviously, um, uh, the ABA, uh, and, and some of the dalliances prior, uh, in the BAA, uh, Duquesne Garden. I mean, <clears throat> what was it a little, I, I guess, I guess the real question there is why wasn't, and why hasn't Pittsburgh been more of a pro basketball town? Over the years, and did the, did the facilities over those decades in the in basketball's early years as a as a professional kind of endeavor, did that did that have any effect or hindrance on Pittsburgh being a a, a, a town for pro ball? 
I don't think so. I, I think in the 50s, the, the Duquesne team was so successful that it, it basically was the charm of the city and drew well. When Pitt plays well, they draw well. I don't think it's it, it's professional basketball that didn't draw well here because the, the Pipers, as they were winning the first title, were drawing very well towards the end. And had they been allowed to stay here rather than taken to Minnesota, um, so the league could have a franchise in its where the league offices were, um, I think the the Pipers might have had a 50-50 shot of being one of those teams taken into the NBA because we had the market and um, they were starting to uh, draw very well at the arena towards the end of that. Um, and I think with that team coming back, I, I I think it would have continued to be a success to the point where when the Penguins were having financial trouble, it would have been worse because they would have had competition to draw against. And I think that would have killed the Penguins had, uh, had, had the Piper stayed. But I, I don't think it has anything to do with pro basketball as much as opportunities and Pittsburgh will support a winner. If we had an NBA team that won, it you know, would probably have gotten the, the proper support to stay here. All right. Two more things on hoops. Uh, Cause you also do uh you talk about a couple of other facilities here, and I kind of want to end on, on one of them. But uh, you mentioned it earlier, but describe to me, you've got a chapter in your book that used to be a basketball arena here. So this this thing, this Pitt Pavilion that was actually built underneath Pitt Stadium, uh, how, why, and, and, and what was that experience sort of like? How big was that even? And could that, I mean, what kind of a facility was that? It was a, a dirty, it was a couple thousand people. Um, it actually made me laugh when I was researching the first game there, how the lighting was great, blah, blah, blah. And within five years, I mean, everybody was trashing it. It was cold. There was no heating in it. Um, the opposition team had to um, dress in a dressing room outside the stadium. So basically had to go outside to get back into the stadium to play. Um they said it was dirty. They said uh, the floor was horrible. The lighting uh, ended up not being too good. Um, it was just not a good good place to uh, to play in. Um, I can't imagine the airflow was real good. I, I saw I saw it once in the late '80s. Um, I mean, they just had it down there as a storage facility at that point um, before eventually turning it into um, a weight room for the football team. Um, it looked pretty dank. Um, I can't imagine whose idea that was, but I'm sure it saved them a lot of money. And, you know, they ended up having them two national championship teams there. So we'd had some success. All right. Well, I want to end on this. And obviously we, we tend to spend more time on pro sports and, and what used to be in, in that realm. But we also like to dig into various facilities and stuff. But, but while we're on the topic of pit basketball, and this is, this is near and dear to my heart because I went to Georgetown undergrad and, and remember the the early and classic days of the Big East. But uh, you do spend some time in this book uh, regaling in the a lot of the formers, but it's still around today. This uh, Fitzgerald Fieldhouse, and during uh, during the uh, you know the Pittsburgh uh, uh, Panthers had uh, quite a bit of time uh, playing their basketball games in uh, in that facility, the Fitzgerald Fieldhouse. Um, but one of the most memorable moments of that time during the big bad days of the Big East, um, you, you want to set it up and talk about it because um, 
it's uh, it's it's a classic moment in college basketball history. And as long as Billy Raftery uh, continues to uh, be on the microphones of college basketball games, he will be son- always synonymous with this uh, with this moment. Uh, I think crafted just in the moment. Um, but you want to you have a chapter devoted to it. You want to talk about it? Oh, I'll tell you what. When Pitt was at its prime there, especially during the Big East days, there was no louder place um, than the Fitzgerald Fieldhouse. Um, I remember Al Michaels saying about the Olympic uh, Russia-United States game that sound had feel that night. And that's what you felt like when you were at the Fitzgerald Fieldhouse. Now, that night they were really in the beginning of of their um, um, first uh, renaissance of, of pit basketball, where they were just becoming a, a nation and national power. And they were playing a, an undermanned Providence team that night and, and were pretty, pretty dominant um, throughout the game. It was not a game you would put down as a classic, except for this moment. Um, where he comes down and just puts the basketball uh, backboard into 20 million pieces. The place went nuts. And being it was an ESPN Monday night game, all of a sudden you had to wait a half hour till they corrected the problem and, and put another backboard up. So you had a half hour of doing nothing but going over this play time and time again. Burton, little trouble. Now they loop it in the right. Nobody's home. Picked off by Miller. Goes ahead. Lane's on the other wing. He finds oh! it. Oh! Oh! Yeah! Send it in, Jerome! Oh! He joins Daryl Dawkins, Lucius Jackson. Yeah. Others. Now you couldn't make it through that hole. We're gonna be a while. <laughs> no, you didn't hang on the rim. It's just a big man. <laughs> My this... goodness. Hold on at home. Here we go again. We've got to get a cut man in to get the glass out of Jerome's hair. Hanging by a thread. This is amazing. A good dish, but he's ready right by the foul line. Bring it down and bring it home, Jerome. (laughs) You think with their football program, they'd get a superior backboard. Once again, a... Whoa! Impressive yes. jam. Ripped it down. <laughs> oh! Now the budget we had when I coached, I would have gotten fired for that. That's the word, okay? Oh, uh, there's no question. There's no reason for a technical foul. Just inferior equipment and superior body strength. Oh, now he's, look at him now, he feels pretty good. (laughs) 
He'll be a hero. <laughs> it's only a deuce, Jerome. Relax. The first, though. <laughs> a trivia question. <laughs> we're going to take a break here because we're going to be a while, folks. 15-24 here, first half. Pitts up by three. Jerome Lane is up one backboard. We'll be back. That To me, that's what made it legendary is because a half hour uh, of this thing, trying to explain it, hearing Bill Raftery's great call at the beginning and then um, hearing him talk about it for a half hour after, that took the game or the play to another stratosphere. I mean, it ended up being a, a route, but, um, you know, it's celebrated every year here. And then, you know, on five and 10 year increments on ESPN, it's celebrated. Uh, but it was, the place went nuts. It was, it was just a, it was, it was a play that happened at the right time at the right place um, on national TV. Yeah, and send it in, Jerome. I mean, I don't know if he's trademarked yet. I know he's trademarked Great. onions, um, but yeah. Jerome Lane and Charles Smith, right? Those those were all Americans at the time. This was uh, in the yeah. the uh, uh, this is uh, in the mid the mid eighties when the the Big East was uh, arguably the preeminent and dominant uh, NCAA hoops uh, division, and um, just just legendary. And uh, I think it burnished. Not only Jerome Lane's career, but 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 Rafteries as well, and Pittsburgh basketball, I think, as being a very solid component of this Big East thing that was still, you know, kind of early years. Yeah, no, it it certainly did. It took for all of them. Lane is a legend here, and I mean, he was a great player. Don't get me wrong, but that was a lot of the reason he was a legendary player. All right, tell me what you and uh, your uh, your your band of merry reporters uh, are working on now. What else is left to unearth in the history of Pittsburgh sports that hasn't been already uh, uh, fine tooth combed by you guys already? There's, we still got a lot. We got a book coming out in January called Integrating Pittsburgh. Um, story of uh, those brave uh, athletes that uh, helped integrate the sports in, in this area. Um just signed a contract to do a book on, on the seventies as, as we talked about before. And, um, um, I'm also starting a thing with, uh, uh, uh Gary Kin uh, as part of it. Um, it's called draft 412.com. And basically, um, it covers, uh, all the draft information and the information about the prospects of the three major uh, Pittsburgh teams. Fantastic. Uh, when are those things uh, coming out? The website is out uh, now. When is the 70s book? Now, just 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 released. And the 70s book will probably be end of 2023. We're just starting writing it. Is, is there a, a theme or a thread there? Um, yeah, just, I mean, it's Pittsburgh's well known as a city of champions in the 70s, but there was a lot of tragedy that happened too. So it's triumph and tragedy in the 1970s in Pittsburgh. Do you get into the Pittsburgh Triangles at all, World Team Tennis? Has its chapter, absolutely. All right, time for us uh, to send it in, Jerome, uh, for another episode. And uh, we thank Dave for uh, regaling us with some of the memorable moments. You, uh, you know, the, 
you know, as always, we just scratch the surface here. Um, you have to recognize that there are literally, you know, a dozen or so stories for each of these facilities that we went over uh, in this brand new book where Pittsburgh played Oakland's historic sports venues. Uh, it is uh, published uh, by our friends at the History Press. Uh, it is available wherever good and maybe even not so good books are found. And uh, you will li- literally find a whole bunch of stories about uh, the Fitzgerald Field House, the Duquesne Gardens, Forbes Field, uh, Pitt Stadium, etc. cetera. Uh, it's a, a treasure trove. If you uh, uh, herald yourselves or, or hearken back to... Uh, to uh, uh, early life in Pittsburgh. Maybe you're a Pittsburgh native now. Uh, Maybe you've just heard of Pittsburgh and maybe some of these teams. All great reasons uh, to get this book. Uh, Again, where Pittsburgh played Oakland's historic sports venues. You can find it wherever you find books. Uh, Of course, you can find it on our website and maybe give us a little shekel or two of love uh, of referralness by doing so. Just uh, go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, just uh, tool around and find this episode number 281. And uh, on that uh, description, you will see um, uh, not only some great imagery from uh, some of those great venues, but also a convenient link or two uh, to said book. And uh, like I said, we'll get a couple of um, uh, referral points from our, our friends at Amazon. Of course, you'll get the book as quickly as humanly possible, whether it's in paperback or Kindle form. Um, and while you're there... Uh, you can check out the um, uh, seeming multitude of uh, other uh, Dave Finoli either authored or ring-led uh, books about Pittsburgh sports. Um, just a whole bunch of them. Uh, we have the um, uh, the books on uh, uh, the Igloo, which we talked about in our previous episode. They're just it's just a whole uh, array of uh, of great books, and 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 uh, Dave and his friends are making more. And we'll have a couple of some of our favorite titles there on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You can follow Dave Finoli uh, on Facebook at David Finoli, F-I-N-O-L-I. And you can also uh, check out his new site with uh, a couple of members of his gang there uh, at draft412.com, a new sports site devoted to some aspects, some very cool and and real-time aspects of Pittsburgh sports. Again, draft412.com. While you're online, again, bookmark our website, goodseatstillavailable.com. Uh, you can also follow us on uh, Twitter at GoodSeatStill, on Instagram at GoodSeatsStillAvailable, on Facebook as well at GoodSeatsStillAvailable. Uh, you can follow us on YouTube. Uh, I believe our new handle will be uh, at GoodSeatsStillAvailable. Um, uh, and uh, as you may know or may not know, uh, we not only publish to all the various podcast platforms out there. So if you're not subscribing or following us now, pick your favorite and do so. Uh, You can also listen to us, stream it as you might like uh, on YouTube as well on our YouTube channel. So uh, a little uh, little uh, streaming uh, slash podcast hack for those uh, friends of yours out there who may not be hip to the podcast ways. You can uh, just stream it right online there from your mobile device by just going to YouTube and finding the Good Seat Sale Available channel. It's very simple, very easy. We try to make it easy for you. God, I mean, you know, my goodness. Uh, email, please send us that if you'd like. Please keep it nice and, and clean. Uh, and uh, that's uh, hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. 
Com. Let's see what else. Pod Podfly. I was going to say Podfly Productions. If you remember back in the day, five, four, four or five years ago, uh, this uh, quiet little guy in the corner. His name was Jerry Payne, and he was the guy that uh, uh, Podfly Productions, a, a wonderful organization based in, um, I think it's in Alabama somewhere. Uh, Jerry Payne was this sort of meek little voice sort of in the background of this team of uh, uh, podcast uh, professionals that were uh, exceedingly patient and helping yours truly learn this medium and uh, get uh, our initial almost three years worth of episodes up uh, onto the air and into the uh, atmosphere of the internet. And Jerry Payne, God bless him, stuck with us all this time, leaving Podfly Productions for the greener pastures of his own entity, Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. And uh, God bless, he's still with us to this day. We've uh, tried to scare him away. We've tried to frustrate him to no end. Uh, and yet he sticks around uh, and takes more uh, of our uh, abuse uh, each and every week. And uh, this week is uh, absolutely no excuse. We throw him the parts and he makes it uh, come out nicely and smoothly. And we appreciate it. As always, Jerry Payne, audio excellence. Uh, feel uh, feel uh, a little uh, love uh, for him. Uh, the Atlanta United soccer team, not uh, doing this well, not making the playoffs this year. Uh, the Braves, uh, as we record this, already lost their first game in the championship uh, or the division series. And uh, the Falcons, well, they're just the Falcons. But um, but Jerry uh, soldiers on, and we appreciate his help, as we do each and every week. All right. We've embarrassed him enough. We've embarrassed myself enough. Thank you for listening this far, and we'll see you next week, God willing. Thanks for uh, doing so, and uh, we'll see you. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.